Welcome to this talk from the Canon Do Zen Meditation Center. Located in Mountain View, California, Canon Do's meditation practice is open to the public. For more information or to get in touch with us, you can visit our website at canondo.org. That's K-A-N-N-O-N-D-O dot O-R-G. Is there a title to your talk, Vanessa? The Language of Dreams. Thank you, Diane. And good evening, everybody. And good morning to anybody joining from Europe. I'd like to start by reading um, a short extract from the Diamond Sutra just in this, in this quiet moment that follows the zazen and that follows our chanting. All conditioned dharmas are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, like dewdrops, and lightning flash. Contemplate them thus. So tonight I'd like to share with you a little bit, um, a story and some poetry by uh, a master a nun who lived uh, maybe three, 400 years ago in China. Her name was Ziyong Chengru. And I'm sorry if I'm butchering the pronunciation. Um, Ziyong Chengru is how I understand how her name was pronounced. So I'm going to start with a story um, about Master Ziyong. It's a very typical kind of Zen story in its structure. And it finds us on, on her deathbed when Master Ziyong Chengru was dying and her disciple was with her. Um, her disciple was a nun called Jingxuan. And Jingxuan was very anxious about the fact that her master was dying and the fact that um, she was about to transition into Nirvana. And she was anxious how that transition would go. And so Ziyong sensing Jingxuan's anxiety said to her, from the beginning, there has been neither birth nor death. So what nirvana will there be? But Jing Xuan's grief continued. So Ziyong, um, the master Ziyong, she was a nun and a practitioner in the Rinzai 
lineage. And one of the things that she was known for, like many Rinzai teachers, was giving sudden shouts, you know, or performing sort of sudden surprise actions out of the blue that would sort of shock her students out of their normal mental state or their normal perception of reality. And so in that moment when her student Jingxuan was grieving, Ziyong gave a shout. And Jingxuan immediately went into a state of deep meditation. So then Ziyong called her out of it and asked her, at this moment then, is there any nirvana or is there not any nirvana? And Jingxuan answered her, your disciple from the beginning has experienced neither birth nor death. So what nirvana can there be? And then Ziyong, her teacher, replied to her, since there is no birth or death, how can there be a nirvana? Jingxuan did not know what to say. So then in that silence, her teacher said to her, this is what it is like before the dream. And the student Jingxuan asked, what is it like after the dream? And her teacher replied, when you are in a dream, you still speak the language of dreams. So I was very touched by this exchange um, when I first read it. I, th I think there's a lot in there for me um, that talks about practice, talks about impermanence, grief. Um, it talks about compassion and the compassion of especially the compassion of a teacher to her student. And, and then it talks about um, not knowing and awakening. So, you know, right at the beginning of the scene, you know, the teacher's on her deathbed and her disciple is, is grieving her. She's grieving and she's anxious about what happens next. I think about how maybe more in our tradition or in a, in a Christian tradition, um, we sort of, there's the, there's comfort in the idea of heaven, you know? And so perhaps if somebody's dying, we, we, we can comfort ourselves with the idea of an afterlife, you know, somewhere that they're going to, somewhere that will be receptive and warm and loving. And then in this story, there's kind of a twist to that idea. Um, 
where Ziyong, the teacher, isn't really trying to placate her student by saying, well, you know, don't worry, everything will be fine. I'm going on to a better place. You know, I'm about to enter into nirvana and be released from all suffering. You know, she she even takes it a little further. Um, she She really enters and seizes the opportunity to teach her student in that moment. She says something to her along the lines of, um, in our world of interbeing, in this place where distinctions shatter and there's no such thing as birth and death, how can there be nirvana? And and that's something that we hear intellectually, you know, we, we hear that told all the time. We hear that taught, you know. In a world of interbeing, how can there be birth and death? How can these distinctions hold up? And so I can hear that and think, hmm, that's a nice idea, isn't it? Um, it's an intellectual concept. And in that moment, the student Jing Xuan's grief persists. It doesn't go away just by reflecting on this idea. And so then her teacher compassionately, I would say, tries another approach. I'm taken by this. I mean, she's dying here. <laughs> she's dying and, you know, she's she's looking for ways to teach her student and so she she invites her or she takes her out of the this sort of mental intellectual realm and performs this surprise you know shock gesture that sends her student into zazen and sends her into experiencing non-duality for herself and then she asks her again, you know, so now, now what, what do birth and death mean to you? And, and, and Jing Xuan, her student from, from the place of um, experiencing non-duality says to her, well, this, this, this no longer makes sense to me then. How can Nirvana make sense in this context? And so her teacher asks her again. She re repeats, she reflects the same question. She reflects it back to her. And she says, well, since there is no birth or death, then how can there be nirvana? And Jing Xuan's re response is to fall completely silent. She can't say anything. She, she doesn't know. She's... Um, She doesn't know. And that place can, can be a place of, of beautiful potential. It can be a place where the, the skies, the vast skies of the mind open up 
and where what we what we call the true beginner's mind manifests a place of doubt place of questioning a place of not not knowing and not understanding So the master Ziyong, Ziyong Chengru had a, a long and illustrious career as a nun, as a teacher. She was the abbess of several monasteries in China. And she liked to travel as well. Um, she liked to travel in search of teachers, in search of teachings. Um, she was based around the capital what's now Beijing in China. And she would often or sometimes travel to kind of various mountain monasteries around the country. Long, long journeys that would take her away. And she wrote a lot of poetry. She sort of journaled and um, kept a record of her thoughts, of her practice. And along the theme of the language of dreams, um, it's a beautiful language of dreams. I, I find it very beautiful, her poetry and what she puts forward. And there's one maybe more famous poem of hers. It's a very long poem. I, I won't read it all out this evening, um, but it's called 10 Verses Presented on the Occasion of a gathering in the capital of my disciples to see me off. She often has very extremely long titles to her poems, very, very literal titles. So she was about to embark on a, on a long journey, another pilgrimage to the South. And all of her disciples had come to see her. And they were grieving and they were anxious that she was leaving and they were worried about how her journey would go. And so the first verse of her poem reads, Yesterday, my disciples spoke to me of the grief of separation. As they poured out the endless sorrow that was in their hearts. I've ordered the flowers in the courtyard not to be too anxious lest they startle the pearly dewdrops on the autumn blooms. So I, I like this, I like this verse because in it, it kind of echoes um, what comes later in the story of her leaving her disciple on her deathbed. Um, the first thing she writes about in this long poem is her disciples' grief. She's she's addressing it. She she feels compassion towards it. And then maybe a little bit of impatience at the same time. Um, I've ordered the flowers not to be too anxious, she says, you know, in case that anxiety get in the way of things, in case, in case it interferes in case it startles the dewdrops on the autumn bloom. 
later on in the poem, she kind of almost berates her disciples by saying, stop nattering on my disciples about how fond of me you are. When fall comes, you can expect the geese to return as before. When fall comes, you can expect the geese to return as before. So she's she's assuring them, not necessarily that she'll come back. And actually, what I think what's sad is that she didn't come back from this journey. Um, this journey ended up being much longer than she anticipated. And um, she ended up being invited to uh, preside over various monasteries in the South. So she actually never returned um, to see her disciples. But if she's not necessarily guaranteeing her own return, what she says to her disciples is you can expect the geese to return as before. So life goes on, you know, the cycles will continue, the geese will return. It's a, a statement of faith in some ways. And then finally, at the end of the poem, there's a couple of lines um, that say, the sorrow of parting is meaningful and so hard to dismiss. But if the way is in tune with no mind, it will go as it should. So here, I think a, a much softer teaching about impermanence, about parting. She's acknowledging the sorrow is real and it's meaningful and it, it cannot or should not be dismissed or ignored. Um, but when, when a journey is in tune with the way, is in tune with no mind, is in tune with practice, when we are in tune with the way and with practice, then, then things will flow and they will be as they should. The pearly dewdrops on the autumn blooms will not be disturbed. And so back to her deathbed, Ziyong, is sitting with her student and she's sitting with great compassion for her grief. Her student is silent. And in that moment in the story, I feel like Ziyong joins her in that silence. And I asked myself, what is that silence? What, what does that silence become? Is that then the silence of knowing or the silence of not knowing? But whatever it is, it's the, the space in that moment where the two women meet. One of the questions that Ziyong used to like to ask people when they came to visit her as a teacher, um, she used to ask them, the very classic Zen question, where are you from? And of course, some people would interpret it as where have you come from? You know, I've come from the East, I've come from the West, I've traveled all day and just from the next town. 
And then there's a deeper sense to this question that's inquiring about a deeper origin. It's kind of similar to the to the koan, show me your face before your parents were born. Who is it? What is it that comes thus? And so in a similar vein, Ziyong asks her student or says to her student, this is what it's like before the dream, before the dream. In this silence, could there be a, a manifestation of your original self? And here she's pointing to something ineffable and pointing her student. And then out of that silence and out of that flow of continuity, a question spontaneously arises for Jing Xuan, her student. If this is what it's like before the dream, then what is it like after the dream? So in some ways you could say she kind of, she sort of falls back into, she falls into a dualistic mindset. Again, if her teacher invoked the notion of before, then it immediately made Jing Xuan think of after, what's before the dream, what's after the dream. And this is how our minds work. Uh, we are we are creatures of relativity. Where there's birth, there has to be death. Where there's light, there's darkness. You know, so in order to conceive and define, communicate and make sense, we hold things to be relative to one another. But we compare things to one another in order to know their outline. And that's how our infinitely beautiful, complex sometimes rational, sometimes poetic minds work. These dreams, these illusions in which we live, they're the ground of our reality. They are our reality. There's a chapter in Master Dogen's Shobagenzo that's called Muchu setsumu. And that translates as something like on a dream within a dream. And I'm going to read a, a short excerpt from that chapter. All that manifests within the whole universe is but a dream. This dream consists of all the hundreds of things that sprout up ever so clearly. It is the very moment when we are about to give rise to doubt, the very moment when we are confused. This moment is, say, a sprouting up of the dream, a sprouting up within the dream, and a sprouting up that gives expression to the dream. In exploring this through our training, we find that the roots and stalks with their branches and leaves and the blossoms and fruits with their lustrous colors and forms all together comprise the great dream. 
So that's a little section from the Muchu Setsumu. And so Dogen mentions in there, giving rise to doubt, giving rise to confusion, moments of not knowing, you know, the vulnerability and how these can be turning moments, moments in which like the student Jing Xuan, we can give expression to the dream. We give expression to the dream. You know, she talks about this kind of sprouting up, um, the presence of her anxiety. Where are you going now that you're dying? What is happening to you? How, how will you transition? What's it like after the dream? And from, from what I understand, um, from what Dogen writes, everything is part of this dream. The roots, the stalks, the branches, the leaves, the blossoms, the fruits, the colors, you know. And what he doesn't say is, well, this is all an illusion and delusion and you need to ignore it and turn your back on it. He encourages an exploration. He encourages engagement in this because this dream is the ground of our practice. This, this is what Buddhas are, or this is where Buddhas live on this ground, the dream within the dream or the vision expressed within the vision. Our language is the language of dreams. This is what Ziyong is teaching. How can we describe awakening from within a dream when all we have is the language of the dream? So we can, we can draw parallels from actual dreams in our lives, from our sleeping dreams. I find this helpful sometimes to some degree. You know, when, when we dream, we still carry this kind of sense of self in the midst of everything that's happening, experiencing different things, experiencing emotions. And sometimes with the rare experience of a lucid dream, um, you can wake up within that dream and kind of um, realize the illusion of the dream. And this, this is a wonderful experience, you know, very, very liberating, rapturous. Um, I haven't had many lucid dreams in my life, but when I have, I've laughed out loud in my dream, like, ah, oh, it's not real. Um, but outside of lucid dreaming, you know, how could I ever explain the concept of a dream to my sleeping self? Because our practice and the, and the fundamental teaching of Buddhism is about awakening. Um, Buddhist teaching is predicated on, on this notion of awakening. Um, the word Buddha means the awakened one. That, that root bud, bud in, in Sanskrit means to awaken, to know, or sometimes even to like regain consciousness after having fainted or passed out, you know, to, to come to, to come back. <clears throat> um, 
Now, I did a little etymological research on these lines, and I, I might be making this up for myself, but I, I quite like the poetic connection also with the word bud, like the bud of a flower. You know, I like to think about awakening, or it helps me to think about awakening in terms of a flowering, like an opening, a, a coming into a ripening, um, coming into maturity, coming into life. When a flower buds, it doesn't need an alarm clock to wake up. It's, a, it's an awakening that occurs naturally and in accordance with certain conditions. You know, it needs the right temperature, it needs sunlight, it needs water. Um, and so you can provide all of these conditions that are necessary for a flower to, to bloom, for a bud a bud to open, but you can't force the opening. You can't make the opening happen. All you can do is provide the environment. There's a beautiful line in Ziyong's poem, the one that I read from earlier. There's another few lines that say, Clouds emerge without thinking. Birds just sing their songs. The wind pierces the flowers shimmer, their fragrance so fine. What need to seek for anything more than surprises like these? So Ziyong on her deathbed in her final moments is still working compassionately to transmit to her student and to bring the right conditions for her awakening. She says to her, this is beyond language. This is beyond what I can tell you with words. All I have for you is the language of dreams. And it's a beautiful language. The final teaching of Ziyong's um, makes me think of the section in the Genja Koan about the fish in the water and the birds in the air. The fish is in the water and speaks the language of water and the bird is in the air and speaks the language of the air and how could how could each one understand each other's element the lines from the genjo koan read the fish and the bird have never left their elements if the bird leaves the air it will die at once if the fish leaves the water it will die at once if a bird or a fish tries to reach the end of its element before moving in it, this bird or this fish will not find its way or its place. When you find your place where you are, practice occurs, actualizing the fundamental point. Thank you.
I'll gladly invite any questions or comments. Or the silence of not knowing. <laughs> we can sit together with that too. Yes. Dave. Thank you so much for a beautiful talk, Vanessa. Um, for some reason, I was particularly struck by the passage about ordering the flowers not to be anxious and disturb the dewdrops. I don't know if I'm really understanding it, but the way it strikes me is that the dewdrops can't really be disturbed and the flowers can't really be anxious. And in any case, you can't really tell them what to do. Mm. And in the same sense, she couldn't tell her students not to feel grief. And yet, at the same time, at a very deep level, I mean, she couldn't tell them to feel composure, but the composure was already there. Mm. And so just as the dewdrops were at peace because they were fundamentally at peace and the flowers were not anxious because they were fundamentally not anxious, the way for her students to find composure was to look within and not just for her to order it. Mm. I, lo I love that line. I, I feel like I, I feel like it's very tongue in cheek also when, when she said, well, I've ordered the flowers not to be anxious. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think there's a wonderful humor in that in that line that I think, as you say, precisely addresses the futility of such a such an idea. Yes, thank you. Philip. I'll jump in and shake the shake off the dewdrops, probably. Uh, I I uh, I love love your talk and um, don't pretend to um, have a grasp on it. Um, but one thing that did uh, resonate for me is the um, the relationship between the the Diamond Sutra uh, section that you you quoted from at the beginning and then immediately you spoke of the um, the dialogue on the deathbed and um, the issue of, of Nirvana and and it seems to me there, I don't know if, if this resonates with with what you wanted to communicate to us, but um, in the uh, quote from the uh, Diamond Sutra, it's like the whole world is, is this uh, dreamlike uh, landscape and uh, 
and language and all the phenomena, the confusion of it. There, there really isn't anything out. It, it says the conditioned events implying maybe that there was, there's something outside that, but at least what you um, read to us didn't have a, um, an outside. Uh, it was mm. just, it was all plunged into that experience. And uh, it seems like the deathbed conversation was really <clears throat> about that too, that the student um, was kind of obsessed about the idea of uh, liberation from, from um, the conditioned world. And the, the teacher was in a way kind of pulling her back in the in the gentlest way uh, not to uh not to try to make something uh special about uh, the difference between uh, the conditioned our conditioned life and uh, and nirvana Mm. Is that? I yeah, I love the way you articulated that, Philip. <laughs> exactly. I think I think her, you know, her pulling her back from that, um, you know, her not wanting to hang on to that that concept or hang on to that image. Mm necessarily like not wanting her to kind of um lean on that in that moment sensing the importance of that you know in this moment where and also where time is just <laughs> slipping through their fingers and what you and also what you just touching on what you were saying about you know this particular reference to conditioned dharmas as well and when you say you know when but you know not knowing what's outside of that the conditioned dharmas too it's something that I was reflecting on um in using all of these sort of illustrations or images um especially the image of the dream uh I think and the reason why I I really enjoyed Dogen's take on it is because in in the classic kind of image of the dream you know you have somebody who's sleeping but it's in contrast to the waking state you know so it's it, it like in the movie mate it, it, like in the matrix movie I don't know if you guys are familiar with it but you know there's somebody who's like hooked up so they have like a body that's dreaming but and then there's this whole other world, you know, and the idea is that when you awaken, you sort of, you come back to what is this dreaming body, but there's no such kind of separation inherent here. Um, our experience is the dream and there's no, there's no sleeping body that's going to wake up necessarily. And I say those words and, to, you know, to actually claim that I can plumb the depths of of understanding what that really means, you know, I can't say that. Um, but it it feels like it, it's something that I try and come back to as as a teaching or an idea. Mm. 
Hi, Dan. Hi, Vanessa. Um, I really appreciate the artful way you organize your talks and how thoughtful they are. They're always very, very meaningful and you you frame your remarks with, with a lot of deliberateness and care and they're very effective. I don't remember um, who said this. It may have been less um, years ago. I just said, asked uh, him, is there a way to blow it with this practice? Is there, is there a way to make a huge mistake? And, and he said, you cannot blow it in this practice if it flows from your sincerity. Mm. Uh, that was a wonderful, wonderful, um, a memorable teaching. Um, because I, I too am very intrigued with what tickles the buds so that they will open. Is, is there something to the safe where we can tickle the tumblers and have the safe pop open. Um, and when I try to artfully uh, rejigger the lock, um, the whole thing eludes me. Anytime I, I touch it to the left, it goes to the right. I touch it to the right, it goes to the left. But when I'm thrown back upon my own sincerity, which you're your talk really encourages in me and the rest of us. When I'm thrown back um, upon my own sincerity, I find that there's a pathway that opens that was in front of me that tickles those buds that you're talking about. Mm. So I love the fact that your talks are infused with poetry and they um, elicit poetry in us. Mm. Thank you, Dan, and for that um, and for that image of of sincerity. When when you were saying that, I kind of thought of um, sincerity as a refuge, you know, since like taking refuge in the sincerity of your practice. Um, it made me in in that moment. It reflected back to me, you know, how vulnerable. I feel c coming up and, and talking, you know, in front of a group of practitioners and what gives me the, um, you know, what, what, what permission or what, um, endorsement I have to do that. <laughs> um, whatever the limits of my own understanding are, and and how vulnerable it feels to share something that's that's touching to you. Um, but I feel if I can if I can use sincerity, if I can take refuge in the sincerity, then it's then I'm then I really I I I couldn't give more than that. Like you know, I can. I can be very forthcoming about my limits. That's really helpful. Thank you, Dan.
I'm so happy to see everyone's faces. I miss you all. <laughs> it's great to be able to come together. Wait a sec, Vanessa. Isn't it just a dream that you're in Provence? Feels like it. <laughs> I'm in Provence and then here I am and here we all are. <laughs> and who knows where we are. <laughs> all our bodies in different places, all coming together in a dream space. <laughs> Philip. I was just thinking, uh, Vanessa, of uh, another Rinzai master. Uh, there, there was a there's a story, a Cohen kind of story about. I think it was Hakuin, and if someone knows, please correct me. But um, he uh, was always bothered by this this uh, story of a uh, a master I think called Ganto, who. Um, whose hermitage was invaded by bandits. And um, before they, they were about to kill him, and um, he, he, uh, he gave this huge shout that, that could be heard all around the, the countryside. And it, it always bothered as I recall this this story, uh, which seems in a way kind of parallel to the disciples' feeling mm. about uh, nirvana in the in the story that that you told us on on the master's deathbed that that um, she wanted some kind of assurance, and I, my sense is that he Hakuin felt. Um, that it was kind of a false bravado or, or whatever, or, or was it was this sincere? Are we talking about sincerity? Was this really a, mm -hmm. a sincere event, a sincere mm -hmm. expression? And um, <clears throat> as I under, understood from reading uh, of his enlightenment experience, um, what, what he said was, uh, I am uh, Ganto unharmed. Mm. And your the the context that you pre presented this is um, really um, I, I, for me adds um, gives a meaning a sense to 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 that uh, that story that I that I hadn't uh, felt before. So thank you. Can, can I ask you, Philip, to, to elaborate just a little again on the connection between that last line and and the connection that you're making? So when he says, I am Ganto, was the teacher's name? I think so. What his probably, name was, yeah. unharmed. Like, what does, what, what, what does that mean for you, the... I'm unharmed. I think that that story uh, left 
left me feeling this, the same way that uh, Akwin talks about hearing about what Ganto shout. It, it, it feels like there was, there was it, it always felt to me like there was um, an issue of, how, of the sincerity of it in a funny way. Uh. And, and uh, you're, you're putting this in, a, in the context of, uh, that, that you mentioned the, uh, is, I forget the name of the show, it was the Shobogenzo uh, part, part that you told us of Dogen's dream within a dream that um, the realization um, somehow I felt <clears throat> thinking of that story in the context of the, of your lecture, I could feel the sincerity of that that remark rather uh -huh. than a kind of Rinzai, kind of a macho Rinzai expression, you know, but rather. <coughs> Yeah. A, real, a real deep uh, feeling to it. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. Thank you, Philip. Diane. Thank you, Vanessa. It was a lovely, beautiful talk as usual. Um, I'm thinking about dreams and I'm wondering if in our dreams, or if you think in your dreams, you're in touch of your deep unconscious, the, maybe the sort of the collective unconscious that we all share. And do you feel like your dreams ever speak to you or teach you? Or do you think they're just a collection of experiences or neuro connections that happen throughout the day with your experiences? Do you think that dreams come from a deeper place, a place maybe we're not conscious enough of or in touch enough with. Mm. Yeah, I kind of sit up there when you when you talk about the collective, the idea of the collective unconscious playing into dreams. It's not something I've really thought about or spent a lot of time with, but it's it's a very intriguing idea to me. Um, I think of my own dreams as as coming from a you know a deeper maybe more more buried sort of unconscious place inside myself that I'm not so aware of um I'm I'm really my, my own personal relationship with my dreams is that I'm very I'm very interested by them I don't necessarily um take them to be prophetic mm. um although i i can i can i can appreciate the symbolism that my subconscious is throwing up <laughs> often um I, I i've had a i've used dreaming um as a way of addressing 
some issues in my subconscious mm. uh, that lucid dreaming, as I mentioned earlier, I uh, several years ago kind of came to a realization that I'd been having a, a repeating dream for many years. And I, um, I have a, I have a dream of being chased often like in danger of my life you know so a, a dream of kind of running away um usually from sort of terrorist type people who want to kill me and who are brandishing large weapons yeah. <laughs> um all sorts of freudian readings about that and then somebody said to me once well have you ever thought of confronting you know who are these people and i said i don't know and somebody said to me well have you thought about confronting them and then that plunged me into a whole sort of process of research about well how do I do that and how do I lucid dream and how can I control that and so I there's books out there and literature out there and there's sort of these practices that you can do I'm sure maybe some of you are familiar with that or have done it and it was it was just incredibly um uh like useful it just it worked I couldn't I, I think I can't remember what I had to do but like five times a day I had to sort of become aware and sort of say to myself oh, I'm not dreaming right now you know I'm awake and then it took about three weeks and then the I was in the dream and and the same thing started happening and suddenly I was able to be I was able to wake up or be you know be in control in the dream and turn around and confront the person who was chasing me and it put an end to the repetitive dreaming for about 10 years. Oh. Actually. And then that started again. And I thought, hmm. <laughs> Sorry. But it, yeah. What were you going to say? No, it's really interesting. It's, it's like you confronted your demons or your fears or. Yeah. Yeah. You're okay. such a fearless person in real life all the adventures you've had and the places you've gone alone. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's in, very interesting. Yeah. yeah. It is. Yeah. It is. And and there's nothing more boring than, you know, listening to other people's <laughs> dreams, like stories. And I, and I think of that too, because I think, you know, and why is that? Like, because, you know, you'll have come out of a dream and something will feel so meaningful. And then I'll, you know, I'll go to tell somebody, you know, and then my, great uncle was there and he turned into a sheep <laughs> and it was you know and, and sort of so we'd be like mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and I think it's it has something to do with sort of you know meaning making and the sort of idea of sort of shifting significance or something you know whereas in a dream everything's constantly floating and changing like it is in in our real lives you know but you know in the dream it's just so obvious that it's so that we we're sort of loath to put too much onto that uh -huh. I mean, some people do, but I think in general, we're like, oh, it's just a dream and we forget about it. So I think there's a great teaching in there, you know, about being attentive to that mm -hmm. um, and what we can take away from that and how we relate to that. Exactly. Oh, thank you. Dave, are you tentatively... <laughs> I, I just, for some reason, what you just said about dreams reminded me there's a really funny line in one of the very early Bob Dylan songs where he says, them old dreams won't hurt you none, they's just in your head. <laughs> well, it's
it is nine o'clock. I don't know if anyone else has any comments or questions or things they'd like to share. This talk was brought to you by the Canon Do Zen Meditation Center in Mountain View, California. For more information or to support this podcast, go to canondo.org. That's K-A-N-N-O-N-D-O dot O-R-G.